from 99.9 The Fan. This is The Drive with Tim Donnelly. Sponsored by Coach Pete at Capital Financial Advisory Group. Visit us at CapitalFinancialUSA.com. Lewis, we spoke earlier this week to the captain of the Seawolf, Donnie White, uh, earlier this week on Monday. Uh, again, you listened to that interview on the Best of 99 on the Fan Podcast. He discussed having to go out on Tuesday to help out the boat April May. The boat April May, which was struck by lightning earlier in that day, lost power, um, boat was kind of stranded out there. White claimed that in that interview that the boat Sushi, the boat that won the Big Rock tournament uh, with the largest catch of, of Blue Marlin, that abandoned April May during a time of need. The captain of the Sushi, Charles Pereira, disputes that claim. And Charles, the captain of the Sushi, as well as John Visser, the captain of the April May, joining us now on the Heaster Automotive Group Hotline. Charles is going to come to you first. Let's just I just want you to explain your recollection of that day uh, when the boat April May was in need. Uh, when were you out there? At what point did you leave the boat? I know you had a, a fish on uh, on the boat that you had to take into the docks to get weighed. But what is your what is your account of what happened that day? Well, first of all, Donnie lied about the fish. Also, we did not have a fish okay. on the boat. That was that was another pure fabrication by Donnie White, and uh, we didn't catch anything that day. Nor did we uh, call anything in. Nor did we present anything to weigh that day. Uh, we were. It was. It was a day that was full of uh, scattered uh, thunderstorms and lightning and rain, mm-hmm. and uh, we were very close to lightning numerous times. And uh, uh, it didn't surprise me that somebody got struck. So when we were running in on the after lines out, we were running back in, and I guess we were about eight or maybe ten miles from the shoals on the way back in, coming in from the northeast. And uh, I heard a call on the radio. Um, uh, you know, white sportfish boat uh, off you know, to our side there in the distance. Uh, can you help us out? Uh, we lost both engines, and uh, I looked over and saw the proximate direction that they were discussing. I saw a boat stop, so I turned and, and ran to him and uh, uh, stood by his side and, and aid, uh until uh, until he uh, advised me that they uh, got their uh, one of their engines started. And they got underway and were making, uh, I advised them they were making 10 or 11, according to my GPS. And uh, I ran with them next to their side for a while until he felt comfortable. I gave him coordinates, made sure that he had a cell phone apps up and running because his electronics were down. And he advised me that they had their cell phone apps up and running, had good coverage, that they, they knew what their coordinates were and what their speed was. And that my presence was no longer necessary at that point. And uh, I asked if it was okay for me to go ahead and, and run run in and get my clients back to the dock and uh, so they could get a decent night's sleep um, for the next day of fishing if we were going to fish the next day. And he said, yes, sir, that's fine. We're good. We don't need you anymore. And I went on and ran to the shoals eight or ten miles. And when I got to the shoals, um, I got a basically a mayday call from them saying they lost their second engine and uh, or had four inches of water in the engine room. And this, it was blowing 20, 20, 30 knots that day from the southwest pretty rough. And, uh, yeah, actually very rough, the roughest day of the tournament. And uh, so I turned around immediately and told all my guys to hang on, everybody get seated, that I was going to haul ass uh, back to this guy and uh, try to render aid. So I ran 33 knots in six to eight-foot seas on the way back to him. And uh, I updated him the whole time, told him what range I had him on radar and everything and how many minutes I had to get to him. And I got to him, and I stood by their side um, until they – got everything under control, got the water out of the engine room. Um, 
uh, in general, tried to figure out where they were taking on water and all that mm-hmm. and gave them some suggestions about where I thought their water was coming in through the engine vents from the boat rocking in the heavy seas. And uh, they uh, uh, appeared to, to get that under control. And then I stayed by their side for, I don't know exactly how long it was, but it was a considerable amount of time uh, until they told me that um, they had CETO underway uh, to come get them and uh, that everything was good and that they, you know, their drift on their cell phones matched my drift and my coordinates that I, I was continuing to give them. And, uh, and then at that point, they said that my presence was no longer necessary, uh, you know, um, you know, that if I needed to get my people in, uh, that that would be okay. And uh, I told them that I would monitor them the whole way in. I would text them updates. Uh, and then I would come back out if needed, if they had any more incoming water emergencies or anything like that. Uh, he had, we were texting at that point on our phones and I had their number and names and all that. And, um, I told them that if they needed me, I would come back out and assist them again. And so when I got to the shoals, I didn't see CETO yet. So I texted them, you know, that I didn't see CETO yet. And, uh, when I got to the inlet, I texted them the same thing. And, uh, and then when I got to my dock, I texted him the same thing. And uh, I was very concerned that I hadn't seen CETO uh, on my way back in. And so I called the Coast Guard from the dock on VHF channel 16, which is the uh, emergency channel. Mm-hmm. And I gave Coast Guard their coordinates and told them that in the event CETO didn't get there, that Coast Guard needed to dispatch immediately and uh, be there to back up CETO. Um, and uh, the Coast Guard duty officer on 16 at that time told me, uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Pereira, and your people on the sushi vessel. Uh, we've got it under control. We're in touch uh, with the people on the April May. We're in touch with CETO, and they both advised us that everything's okay. CETO's on the way to get them, and we're monitoring the situation. And uh, I gave them my cell phone number, and I asked them to call me if they needed any assistance and uh, that I'd be available all night. And uh, uh, the next morning, um, I texted with uh, with Joe again to make sure everything was okay. And uh, they said everything was good. And, uh, you know, a couple of times I recall him offering, you know, thank, thank you. And can I repay you? Can I take you out to dinner? Can I give you any money or anything? And I told him, no, I don't want anything. You know, it's, this is my duty. You know, we're supposed to help each other. And uh, that's my recollection. All right, Charlie, and, uh, Charlie Pereira, owner and captain of the Sushi and Sushi uh, Sport Fishing, joining us here in the Keystone Automotive Group Hotline. Alongside Louis Fernandez, Dennis Cox here with you, uh, recounting your story about the, the first time that you actually uh, went to the April May. About pro- approximately what time of day was that the first time you went over there when you heard that distress call? I would guess it probably would have been around 4.30 or 5 o'clock. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, you know, I, I don't have everything written down what time I did all that, but uh, I know I was running in and I was getting close to the shoals, so. Uh, it probably would have been somewhere in that 4.30 to 5 o'clock time range the first time that I was called over. Uh, now, I know, I know we also have John Visser, the, the captain of the April May, on the phone as well. Uh, John, a question for you. How Joe. how how does the the Seawolf get involved in, in all of this? What How, how does the Seawolf, you know, wh- where do they come into this picture here? Well, my name is Joe Visser. Oh, oh Joe. Yeah. My apologies, Joe. So we correct that. What was your question? How how did the Sea Wolf get involved with this? Based on you know what was told on Monday, it sounded like they played some kind of role in this. What what was that like? You know, um, we were we were afloat out there, and after I sent Charlie away, um, and we were under the belief that Sito was coming out, 
Um, there was no communication on CETO's behalf to let us know that they turned around. Um, it was Donnie that let us know that he passed CETO because we were at that point was still within cell phone range. And we were able to communicate via radio and cell phone range for on the radio for a short period of time, just because the batteries that went, you know, went down later on because of running the bilge pumps and things. But, uh, you know, we learned from Donnie that uh, on his way out, that he passed Ito and they were turned around the opposite direction, that they were not headed that way. And um, then we radioed them and asked them what was going on. And they said that they were told by their office that they, they, they weren't able to be dispatched to us because it was too rough. So at, at what point during the during that time did did the sushi come back to you all, and how long were they with you before, uh, I guess it was Coast Guard that was actually able to get to you? So, like what Charlie said, you know, um, I Charlie was there, and I, I I was under the belief that he would have stayed there as long as I would have needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that you know we were we were doing okay. We were able to manage the water uh, for a certain point on the first occasion. Like he said, it was around four o'clock or so, four thirty. Um, I you know I was the one communicating with him on the radio. He was kind of giving us some diagnostics on some things to look at. Uh, different things like that. Very intelligent man and uh, definitely well-seasoned. And uh, as a result of feeling like that we were in a good position at that point, uh, engine was still running on the first occasion. Um, you know, we I sent him away, you know, and, um, I mean, he was 10 foot from our boat. You know, everybody was, you know, willing to help and do things necessary. But we, we had, you know, roughly eight people on the, on the, on the boat that were all doing the chain gains with buckets and things of that nature. And, you know, um, troubleshooting at the same time and uh, managing things. Uh, When Charlie, when he left, um, you know, the first time, he had made it very clear that he wasn't going to sleep that night until we had communication that we made it back. Um, I I didn't know anything about any kind of fish or anything. That was never talked about on the radio. Um, It was really about the need and, um, you know, did I need him still to stay there? Of course, when I dispatched him out to that he could leave the scene out there um i was the one that made the frantic call back to him the mayday because our engine went down at that point mm-hmm. and those seas were so high that they were cresting over the back and i saw that you know we were one or two ways away from capsizing and uh, we, our pumps at that point had we lost our batteries and we just were it was managing it with five gallon buckets and hand pumps that we had um, and, you know, I, I talked to Charlie quite a few times as he turned around, let me know he's headed back as hard as he could go with the way the waves were 35 knots or so like that. And, um, you know, and I saw him in the distance, you know, uh, headed our way. And so he got back there very quickly. You know, I was really amazed that there was no other, the fleet of boats was coming by, but there was no communication with any of those guys. Mm. Um, that, that amazed me as, as an owner and a, and a captain myself. Um, I've been fishing this area only four years. This isn't my forte. I, I own the boat, but I, I've got a crew that runs the boat. And um, I was really blown away by the locals, you know, outside of that, that uh, a gentleman that was from up north that, you know, was willing to lend a hand and then turn around and, and haul ass back to us And when the whole fleet was coming by. Because that was one of the things that Charlie mentioned to us was that, you know, look in your rear distance, there's going to be the fleet coming by and things like that too. And um, you know, we lost our radars, everything that we, we had to communicate outside of our 12 volt radios. At what point, my final question for you, for Joe on this, at what point did the Coast Guard actually get to you? At what time during the night? 
Coast Guard finally got to the scene at around one thirty, two o'clock. Oh wow, wow. that's a that's so you're a long out there training experience. for a while. Yeah. Oh yeah. As a, yeah, it was. It's not a night that you you want to try to revisit all the time. Yeah. Um, but you know, when you're out there floating, when you get a, a nice boat like Sushi, uh, guys like Donnie that go out of their way to come out there to you, you know, all you can do is tip your hat and the respect to them for going out of their way. They didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, we are locals, you know, and and I, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more local support. You know, when the Cito decided to turn around i consider them local i have memberships with both cto and and towboat us and um you know when they turned around and we had donnie fly through there no problems that, that was and they were on the catamaran i mean it's it, it amazed me but that was a the decision they made i just wish the communication would have been there because then i could have you know at the time when you are minutes away from making a decision to pull the life raft out and get mm-hmm. people off the boat you know um every every minute counts and you're counting the waves, you're looking at the heights, and um, you're trying to listen to the radio and figure out what's going on, how far away are we. And You know, it was just, it was a tough, a, a very tough situation. Um, my hat's off to Charlie um, for, you know, forever, you know, out to him. You know, he was out there, he gave us some good engineering advice and different things that helped us during that situation. And then when he came back, it was a sense of relief that we had somebody there with us um, just like when Donnie came, it was good to have Donnie come out there. You know, neither one of the boats could tow this boat. It's a 65 foot, 100,000 pound boat. With the seas the way they were, it just mm-hmm. wasn't economic to get it towed that way. Uh, but they definitely all helped in our survival to make sure that we were uh, able to see the next day and have the boat. And that's the thing at the end of the day, Joe, that uh, everyone on your boat, everyone's safe. That's what matters the most. Joe Visser, captain of the April May. Charlie Pereira, captain of the Sushi. Thanks so much for giving us your time and also telling us your your end of the story and how things happened earlier this uh, or this past week. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. And again, that's yep. Charlie Pereira, captain of the Sushi, and Joe Visser, uh, captain of the April May, joining us here on the Heaster Automotive Group Hotline. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Brandon Miller, the top two prospects for the number two pick. Victor Wembanyama is going number one overall. He's he out is of France. minus twenty thousand, according to DraftKings. Make that bet. Make that bet. You'd have to hammer bet, it. You'd have to bet twenty thousand dollars to win one hundred dollars. Hey, you know what? Guaranteed wins. Guaranteed wins. That's how you make money, Luis Fernandez. Okay. But Woj, as he's a, uh, affectionately called, so the Hornets are leaning towards drafting Brandon Miller. Alabama's Brandon Miller further solidified uh, his standing as Charlotte's choice at number two with a workout uh, in meetings he had in Charlotte yesterday. This is the first time Michael Jordan, uh, the outgoing majority owner in Charlotte, had a chance to watch Miller in person to sit down and meet with him. And both Miller and Scoot Henderson uh, came back to Charlotte for second workouts. Uh, second meetings and I'm told Miller was better the second time around uh, in that environment than he had been the first time and certainly positionally uh, Miller's advantage over Scoot Henderson in Charlotte 
uh, is that they've got a point guard in LaMelo Ball in Charlotte, who they believe is a franchise-level mm -hmm. point guard. And, and right now, uh, Brandon Miller continues to be the focus uh, for the Hornets at number two. Okay, there it is. Brandon Miller probably going to be in the number two overall pick. Minus 500 to be the number two overall pick uh, right that, now. that number quickly shifted after this report by Woj. Um, knowing based off history uh, with Michael Jordan when it comes to picks, uh, so again, Scoot Henderson, Brandon Miller brought in for second workouts earlier this week. Again, draft is tomorrow. It, it's always been at eight o'clock. One of those two. It was always going to be one of those two. Okay, leaning towards Brandon Miller. Okay, that's fine. But now I'm hearing Michael Jordan really likes him. I'm like, eh, that that's cause for concern. That's cause for concern. You're wearing a Michael Jordan T-shirt right now, Luis Fernandez. I, I am. But this is Michael Jordan when he was uh, a player, though, not Michael Jordan when he, when was, he was an owner. Exactly, <laughs> as an executive. Uh, remember that Kwame Brown guy? Exactly. <laughs> uh, this is what raises concern for people is that, hey, Michael Jordan as an evaluator of talents in players and projecting players of what they can be hasn't had the best track record overall. Now, again, they had drafted guys – like Lamella Ball, who I think is a franchise level point guard. Yeah, I mean six foot seven. The the body type. I mean, it's really only it, it's it's built for today's NBA. Yeah, the the pace of play in which when he's on the floor, when he's playing, injuries aside, when he was on the floor playing, the pace in which the uh, the the Hornets play is astronomically faster than when he's off the floor. So the tempo and everything speeds up, and he opens the floor up for a lot of players, especially in transition. Think PJ Washington's a pretty good pick. Now he's a restricted free agent right now, so he's. It's not saying he hasn't picked good players in no. the past, but overall track record ain't there. You were all in on Brandon Miller a couple weeks ago. Yeah, well, and now you seem well, like you, okay. you're telling me before the show you kind of flipped well, your mind here. Okay, all in might be a bit hyperbolic. I think um, you were all in. I just go ahead and own it. So I, I think the question with these two has always been: Do you draft for fit? or you draft for talent. Mm. Um, it makes, in terms of fit, if you just look at simply what is on the court, Brandon Miller as a tall, long wing who has the ability to shoot well from just about everywhere, who has the playmaking ability that you like to see, those types of players, they are hard to find, and when you do find them, they make a huge difference. Players like a uh, Jalen Brown, or players like a... Paul George, like those those type of players, they go Jason a very, Tatum. Jason Tatum, sure. they they go a very long way mm -hmm. in terms of making a difference on your basketball team. But then you also have someone like a Scoot Henderson, who yes is six two, which is definitely one of the concerns, and but, but he makes up for it by having a six nine wingspan. Yeah, he is incredibly aggressive. Uh, he plays at a, a great speed. Um, he is the comps that you get with him are the Derrick Rose and Russell Westbrook type players. And the concern there is okay, maybe two guards, you already have LaMelo, why go get this other guy? Then it, well, in my mind, then it's just all about talent. And who do you think is more talented? Mm -hmm. Who do you think has the higher ceiling? I, I kind of lean towards Scoot um, just because of. I, I don't want to like I don't want to break it down like this, but he's got he's kind of got that dog in him. That's you know fine. I mean? No, that's okay. Like, that like, means that does matter. In my mind, that stuff does matter. Well, and, and it's just. You see what what he has been doing against um, some the competition in the G League. I think is really incredible. Um, you know, so I don't know. There's there's a lot that goes into it. I think, and Mitch Kupchak said this earlier today at a press conference. By the way, they they don't have the uh, the luxury just to pick who's the best fit. Yeah, this is Mitch Kupchak, as you mentioned, talking about fit 
versus best overall. So, yeah, Mitch Kupchak, he's the general manager of the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, regarding, uh, yeah, Brandon Miller might be the better fit. But, again, most talented player. If you think it's Brandon Miller, go for it. If you think it's Scoot, in my opinion, go for it. But here's Mitch Kupchak. Well, I, I think several years ago, you know, it wasn't a factor at all, okay, as far as fit. You know, you, we're always going to just take the best player. And I would say that's still the case today. Although we are closer to a point in time where we would consider fit, um, but we're not that team that's been in the playoffs for three or four years. And, you know, you're looking to tweak a roster and look for fit when we're not at that place right now. So our decision, you know, is going to remain to be, you know, looking for the player that we think is going to have the best overall career. That's all you can ask for. Take the best player. It's, uh, for some people, uh, uh, from things that Woj has said, things that Shams has said, like there's a lot of people that think Brandon Miller is the better overall talent. That's fair. There's a lot of nuance to get into there regarding some stuff with Brandon Miller. We've talked about plenty of times before, and we're going to talk about more as the show continues. But it's it's going to be interesting to see uh, because you know, this is the type of thing. If you want to make the next step as a franchise, you hit on number two and, you know, Let's see where, where the odds fall in your favor in the playoffs. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.